Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. After the last podcast, a few listeners might think that I'm prescient because within a couple of hours of having recorded it, uh, Defence put out a news release saying that um, a group of Navy ships was going to go away for the next three months to participate in regional deployments, which was exactly the thing that uh, that I was calling for in the segment about the Arafura class offshore patrol vessels. That that was just a pure coincidence. I'm sorry if anyone is disillusioned. But what wasn't a coincidence was that I predicted that the Taipan helicopters would not return to service, or as they are now officially known, the troubled Taipan helicopters. Now, it would be a joke if it wasn't so funny. And in this podcast, I'm actually going to be insulting a few people because this decision, I think, is beyond ridiculous. In making the announcement, Defence Minister Richard Miles freely admitted that this was going to cause a capability gap. It's causing a capability gap for the ADF, taking 47 helicopters, I'm sorry, 46 helicopters uh, out of the equation. Uh, It's also potentially going to have an impact on disaster relief operations if in the next few months we have severe weather conditions, fires and floods spring to mind. Now, the whole Taipan debacle and I'm referring here to their retirement, not to their existence, is an excellent example, I feel, of how completely irrational defence decision-making can get. Now, and there are a lot of people responsible for this. It's mainly Army, but we'll touch on some other important players in all of this, including the media, in a moment. Now, this sort of internal anti-Taipan campaign has been going on for about 10 years when a number of people, and I know who some of them are, but not all of them, they decided for reasons known best to themselves that they really wanted to align themselves more closely with the United States. They just didn't want to have anything more to do with Europe and European suppliers. And I'm, I'm not making this up. As I've said before, I'm not at all a conspiracy theorist. And in some podcasts, I've given bits of evidence. Well, I'll add in another one. Last year, I think it was, Army, yes, last year, Army started putting out a supposedly official number that they had done the maths and keeping Taipan in service to its full date of 2038, another 15 years, was going to be an expensive exercise because of the costs of supporting the aircraft. And they claimed, and this is officially, like in Senate estimates, that there would be a saving of $2.3 billion by retiring them early in 2025 and using Black Hawks instead. Well, I've touched on this in writing and I'll repeat now. I know that that is a completely bogus number Because to get to the $2.3 billion, Army invented a a midlife upgrade figure for the helicopter fleet of $2 billion. Now, the helicopters actually don't 
need a midlife upgrade. There's no planned midlife upgrade. I mean, sure, if somebody in five years' time or whatever decided that they, they wanted to, go ahead. But no, they just pluck that figure out of the air and they have never been seriously questioned on it. It's part of this pattern now that has become quite routine for defence officials, repeated deliberately or accidentally by ministers, of just inventing numbers. Like, as I've touched, Defence Industry Minister Pat Conroy's $6 billion of August spending in Australia during the next four years, as I expected. That doesn't have any substance. Or the longer bogus 20,000 well-paid union jobs for the construction of the AUKUS submarine. Anyway, let's focus on Taipan and use it as a microcosm of what passes for defence analysis and decision-making. Now, the worldwide fleet of these helicopters, technically the NH-90 series of helicopters, the worldwide fleet operating now is about 500 helicopters. The total fleet has is approaching 400,000 flying hours. They are being operated by, I think at last count it was 13 countries. And of course, within the countries, there are sometimes multiple users. For example, the French Navy and the French Army use them. The same pattern is true in Italy. So when you put all of that together, you've got about 16 separate entities that have been operating them successfully. Have there been some problems? Yes, there have been. There were initially with any brand new, very advanced platform, all sorts of teething problems with spare parts and stuff going wrong that you didn't expect to go wrong and and all of this sort of thing. But as the fleet has matured, those sorts of problems have diminished dramatically. And Australia is one of only two countries that is having anything like the problems that we are with supporting them. Now, the the other country, by the way, being Norway, and that was a very, very special case because they wanted their own anti-submarine warfare version of the helicopter integrating their own dipping sonar and their own lightweight torpedoes, which was always going to be a horrendously uh, risky undertaking, as turned out to be the case. Anyway, getting back to the big picture. So the rest of the world has all of these helicopters that they have been successfully operating, but Australia does not. Now, doesn't that fact alone tell you that the situation needs further investigation? Why is it that we are having these disproportionate difficulties? Now, I mentioned Italy briefly. They, They are one of the largest, if not the largest, user. Their Navy has just taken delivery of their 50 6th NFH, NATO frigate helicopter, and their army has uh, 60-plus of the tactical transport version. 120 helicopters. They love them. No problems with maintaining, supporting them. They have deployed the, the helicopters to Afghanistan, and that's a very hostile environment. I've been there. I mentioned that in a previous podcast. If you can successfully operate in Afghanistan, you can pretty much successfully operate anywhere. Very dusty, 
at altitude. It can be very hot. It can be very cold. There's not a lot of infrastructure around, all of that sort of thing. Now, not only did Italy deploy their helicopters to Afghanistan, but Germany has done the same thing. Germany and France have also deployed to Mali. Again, a lot of combat, very, very hostile environment for reasons you know, similar to Afghanistan. Not a lot of facilities, inhospitable climate and geography. Now, everyone else loves the helicopters. Yeah, as I say in the beginning, that there are you know hiccups with spare parts, and it is said that some people are still not entirely happy with the rate of availability and things like that. Um, I'm not sure why, by the way. I mean, some of this comes down, would you believe, to some very basic stuff like how many spare parts services order, what their support arrangements are. It isn't necessarily related to the, the helicopters themselves. And by the way, I don't fully understand the spare parts issue, and I've looked into it. Commercially, Airbus produce a lot of helicopters, and they have a global support centre, which is located just outside of Marseille. It's a huge facility. It's From a sort of command and control perspective, it's very impressive. They've got all of these – it's like going into, you'd think, NORAD under Cheyenne Mountain with these gigantic – maps of the world, electronic maps of the world, electronic charts, and all of this information about helicopters everywhere and what their maintenance status is and all of that sort of stuff. Attached to the, the this facility is a gigantic warehouse and spare parts are dispatched and they will reach any helicopter anywhere in the world within 24 hours. So what the particular hang-up is with the military stuff, don't know. Maybe it's just got to do with the smaller numbers. But, okay, back to Taipan. As I say, demonized by the army with some unnecessary groundings. Uh, again, as I've uh, written in uh, Talisman Sabre 2019 was a good example where an Australian helicopter developed tail rotor, vibration. The fleet was grounded. At the same time, New Zealand, with their Identical helicopters continued to fly theirs during Talisman Sabre because guess what? They had been contacted many months earlier about this potential tail vibration problem and they had undertaken preventative maintenance so they were able to keep on flying. Whereas our people who are, I mean, you know, Army and KSG, who had ignored that, they had to route round the fleet. Now, Speaking of, since I've mentioned New Zealand, people might say, well, ah, uh, Italy, mm, that's not really a relevant example because, well, they're Italians and they've got a bigger helicopter fleet and they've got a much bigger aviation industry. That's true. But at the other end of the scale, New Zealand, just on the other side of the, the Tasman, they have eight Taipan helicopters, which they have been operating without any major problems for more than 10 years. Again, initially, maybe not getting quite the work rate out of them that they wanted. They now, of the worldwide fleet, New Zealand now has the highest availability rate. Wouldn't you think that people in Army and CASG would go and study what other users are doing? But no, they appear to have no interest whatsoever in doing so. They're much happier to just sit back 
and demonise the helicopter to allow rumours to spread rather than fixing the problem. Now, to that we can add in, it's a pretty toxic mix. There have been a couple of critical ANAO reports into Taipan and Tiger. I think the ANAO does great work in an environment where where defence suppresses so much information, we desperately need an organisation like that to look into projects. However, ANAO is only as good as the data it gets, and all of the information, performance information, availability data that it got about Tiger and Taipan came from defence themselves. There was no... Uh, independent review into what the problems were. So, you know, ANAO comes out with a negative report, media piles on, even our think tanks, uh, ASPE in in particular, um, simply latched onto that and says, oh, well, this is proof that, you know, the helicopters are are, are just not worth trying to support. Their their availability is low and it's costing a fortune. Well, why don't don't they look at, at what's happening elsewhere in the world? I mean, I just find it... So frustrating that no one seems prepared to make the smallest effort to try and find out what's happening. And then, of course, <clears throat> the media, uh, the, I'm talking mainstream media, of course, even I am tempted by the occasional, you know, clickbaity headline or, or perhaps try and make something a little bit more exciting than, than it objectively deserves to be. But the mainstream media in particular love a negative story. And they basically, there are some of my colleagues who now are in full possession of the facts about Taipan, that in fact it's a good helicopter, but they won't run it because their editors are against it. I mean, having spent 10 years writing all of this negative stuff, as I say, the the, the official title of the helicopter appears to be Troubled Taipan Helicopters. They're now not going to turn around and start saying, oh, well, we got it all wrong. Whoops, sorry. It turns out that we've been misled. That doesn't happen. And also writing positive stories isn't clickbaity enough. Now, I'll tell you another party in all of this who knows exactly what's going on but will not speak, and that's the manufacturer Airbus themselves. Clearly, they are in possession of all of the facts. I think that they've done poor job in all of this, but you have to consider, I mean, (laughs) they've done a poor job explaining what's going on. I think that they've done as good a job as they possibly can from a technical point of view, but they've been muzzled by the government. They have a contract in place that bans them from making any media commentary whatsoever, and I know that they have been threatened by at least one government minister that if they were to go public on any of this helicopter stuff, basically they would not do another dollar of business in this country. So you can see that so much positive information has been suppressed and so much negative and false information has been allowed to spread. Anyway, so retiring them in 2025, I thought was just the wrong decision, just completely silly spending $3 billion replacing them with Blackhawks. Nothing wrong with Blackhawks. Good, robust, old-style helicopter, but we didn't need to do it. And grounding them now never to return to service, I think, is just absolutely crazy stuff. 
I really hope that we are fire and flood free this summer. Anyway, I've got a bit of time, a little bit of time, so I'll continue a bit more of my uh, fictitious conversation with the um, US uh, Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin about the outline of uh, the August deal, or rather the provisions that are contained in the legislation still stuck in the Senate. I touched on the insanity, the insanity of having to decommission and dispose of Virginia-class submarines in Australia. And I've pointed out that it's not going to happen and we should be up front with the Americans and just say to them, listen, our court system has already blocked the establishment of a low-level waste storage facility and there is no way that they're going to prove anything uh, that involves higher-grade waste, let alone uranium-235. So that's just a showstopper now rather than pushing it down the road 10 years. The Americans, by the way, uh, they have extensive reporting environments. And so this is going to become very clear to them very soon. And this idea, oh, well, you know, somehow in 10 or 20 years' time we'll get around to it, just isn't going to wash. There is no official solution. Officially, we are just going to wait and see what happens. And people say, oh, well, it'll be on Commonwealth-owned land. Yeah, well, I've got news for you. There's this thing called native title, and Indigenous Australians have a say in all of this. And yeah, I suppose it's possible that it might be manageable to do some sort of deal. But there are some people and some situations where they're just not up for sale. So let's be upfront with the Americans and say decommissioning them here just isn't going to work. And again, the analogy I use is that this is a bit like I think embarking on the Snowy Mountain scheme and saying, oh, we don't know how the power's actually going to get to people. Hey, we're going to build this vast complex of tunnels and dams and it's going to be producing all of this electricity. But, well, as for like, you know, a transmission system, uh, well, we don't know. We'll get all of the dams done first and then we'll worry about how we're going to get it to people and who needs it and who should be the highest priority. It's going about this way. Is just is just plain wrong. Okay, another part of deal with the US is to transfer something like three point two six billion to them for them to go to their submarine building industry. And I only found out that figure because it appears as a footnote in page eighty eight on page eighty eight of the current Defense Department annual budget papers, and. No real rationale provided. Now, I'd be saying to Lloyd Austin, Mr. Secretary, this transfer is so unprecedented that in the US, you need to pass legislation to make it happen. Well, in Australia, we're not really sure of the mechanisms either, because the only other times that we've made cash donations have actually been like foreign aid things, disaster relief things. Now, we don't see the United States as being in need of our foreign aid. Now, okay, but we've made a commitment for this $3.26 billion. Now, we're honourable people, even though the officials who made that commitment have zero authority to do so. We're going to stick with it, but our alternative is to spend that money in Australia 
on our submarine industry to ramp up our supply chain, which we're obviously going to need in the future to be building Orca submarines in the 2040s. So why don't you tell us which components you need for your submarines, for Virginia-class submarines and the Columbia-class SSBNs, and we will spend $3.26 billion procuring those parts for you from Australian companies and we'll ship them to you. And so we should all be sweet. You'll still be getting a contribution from us and we will be strengthening our industry. Okay. So once we've got disposal out of the way, we've agreed or the Americans have agreed that they're going to take the submarines back and they've agreed that we're going to spend that $3.26 billion on local companies rather than just handing it over to them. The third area, why are we getting second-hand Virginia-class submarines? Why not new ones? I'll have a little bit even more to say about this on a future podcast. I've got some further information uh, that is embargoed quite legitimately. I can't rock the boat on that one. Ha ha, no pun intended. But I'll go into supposedly the argument in favour of second-hand rather than new, which I'll, I'll just preview that by saying, in my opinion, it's a non-argument. You say to Lloyd Austin, or I say to Lloyd Austin, the older the submarine is, the more maintenance intensive it is. You can say that just about you know, about just about any complex platform. At the moment, 40% of the US Virginia, uh, not, not just Virginia class, Virginia class and older Los Angeles class SSNs are tied up at docks awaiting maintenance, 40% of them. So you say, look, if you sell us to second-hand Virginia class, even if they've gone through deep maintenance and things like that, they are still going to be far more troublesome to keep going than brand new ones. Also, we don't have anything like the supporting industry that you have in the United States. So by selling us these second-hand ones, what you're virtually guaranteed is that within a year or two, maybe less, they're just going to be tied up alongside at an Australian wharf somewhere, unable to go to sea, unable to participate in coalition operations. So please instead sell us brand new ones. Uh, we'll be going through the commissioning process with your Navy, and then we'll take delivery of them. And then at least we will get, you know, five or 10 years of reliable operation out of them before they start degrading and needing a lot more maintenance. So there you go. They're the, the three areas that I think at the moment are just totally irrational, what we appear to have agreed to. And that they just need to be renegotiated. The Senate hasn't passed the legislation. There's still plenty of time to. Last time I nominated Malcolm Turnbull. If our own, you know, current government is too cowardly to take on on the Americans, ask Malcolm to do it. I'm sure that he'd be happy. Or uh, someone else in Washington. We've got Kevin Rudd. The Democrats like him. He's highly intelligent. He can be charming when he chooses to be. As I know from things like press gallery drinks at the lodge when he was the prime minister, he has fantastic access in the US. Give him the job. Say, Your Excellency, Mr. Ambassador, for these reasons, one, two, three, these parts of the deal that our people for some reason have just given up without negotiation, it needs to be redone. This is your number one job for the next couple of months. Go in there, sort it out with 
Lloyd Austin and whoever else you need to speak to and report back to us when it's done. Okay, that's it uh, for today. Thank you very much for listening. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.